Exodus chapter 12, reading from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. We thank God for his word. This is uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and starting from verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city... And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. 
The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. God bless his word to us. If you could turn back to that passage from Exodus uh, 12 that uh, Thelma read from us, for us earlier on. Well, as somebody um, tweeted on the uh, BBC website yesterday after the, uh, the Wales-France match, it's a match they'll tell their grandchildren about, but for anyone of the Welsh persuasion, it will always be the bitterest of bittersweet memories. And I wonder what are the stories that you will tell your grandchildren. Those uh, historical moments that, uh, however bad your memory is, and I do confess mine is not the, uh, the best, you can still remember because you were there and you can remember them vividly, exactly how they happened, how you felt, um, what you saw, and uh, just how it went through your mind. 9-11, I guess, was one of those moments that we remember where we were when it happened as we looked at those screens and saw those awful events unfolding. Death of Princess Di was probably another one where you can probably remember where you were if you were alive. Um, you're not too, too young to remember. I guess for me, the fall of the Berlin Wall was again another event I experienced personally and um, has memories for me. For uh, sports fans, for football fans, I guess England's uh, World Cup victory of 66 would be a great uh, story to tell your grandchildren if you were around then. Uh, or for rugby fans, maybe that's a World Cup victory of 2003. Uh, happier days um, in then. And I guess for the Welsh, it was that uh, sad year, 2011, which wasn't quite meant to be. But our commiserations go to the, the Welsh. I promise I won't mention it again. Yeah. But many of these things happen just once, don't they? And uh, if they're important enough, though, they need to be passed down to future generations, um, particularly when they involve mistakes that you want to avoid happening again. That wasn't meant to be a reference to the red card or anything. Um, but are mistakes of history. Um, you know, and in Germany, uh, the way uh, Nazism is taught is about um, learning from uh, the, the past um, and how it will never happen again. I think the danger, though, of some stories that are repeated endlessly is that uh, they become so familiar that um, we think we know them, but we've actually misunderstood them. We haven't heard them properly. We haven't listened when they were told. I mean, I remember when Jeff was telling his um, Adam and Eve joke at Paul and Charlotte's wedding recently, um, I thought, yeah, I know this one. I've heard it before, but I couldn't remember the punchline, <laughs> which wasn't a bad thing because I could laugh again sort of genuinely. Um, rather than having to laugh politely. Um, if you haven't heard that one, I'm sure Jeff will tell you later. 
We come to this evening to a passage which is very familiar to many of us here. Um, and it's easy to read these verses and think, yeah, I know this one. Um, you know, Moses warned Pharaoh loads of times. Um, he just didn't listen. And so God sent a plague that was so devastating that Pharaoh was forced to let his people go. And that stuff about blood on door frames and things, well, it's a nice little touch, but, um, uh, you know, it wasn't really essential to the story. If that is our view of this um, episode, then we've not fully appreciated what the Passover was about. Why it was that this day was to be the first day of the Jewish calendar, why it was to represent a new beginning, why it was that Paul could write to the Corinthians hundreds of years later, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When we started on the book of Exodus several weeks ago now, I said that um, the book tells us a lot about God's character. And these chapters here reveal a side of God that we might find quite disturbing, that we might want to try and just ignore. But if we do that, then we risk misunderstanding God and misunderstanding his love for us. I'm going to be focusing on, on verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12 which contain two quite powerful images, the image of judgment and the image of redemption. And we're going to start with with judgment, because God's judgment is terrifying. We can't get away from that. Have a look at verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, I am the Lord. God says what he's going to do, and then if we look over the page of verse 29, we see that he carries it out. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and his, all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And it's difficult, isn't it, to appreciate how terrifying this would have been. The film company DreamWorks produced an animated film, which I'm sure some of you have seen, called The Prince of Egypt. Targeted, you know, as most animated films are, mainly at children. But the thing is, this isn't a story for children. You know, they did it quite well. They conveyed some of the, uh, the horror of that, that, that night. Sound of wailing from distraught parents that reverberated throughout the country. A sound that reached as far as the palace of Pharaoh, the one who had, back in chapter one, ordered the death of the Israelite baby, baby boys. One who now realised what it was like to be on the other side. But the, the hardest thing about these verses is that it was God who caused the death. Yeah, when it was Pharaoh doing it, you thought, well, that's some deranged tyrant. But here you can't get away from the words of God. He says, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. It is shocking, so how do we deal with it? Well, there are different options to us. We can ignore it or pretend that it's not really there, but that would just be denying the truth. We can say, well, it shouldn't really be in the Bible. 
But of course, all of Scripture is inspired by God. You know, Jesus accepted the Old Testament as the Word of God. And so we trust in its reliability. We trust in its authority. We can say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a bit different. You know, Jesus is, is the one who's the, the God of love, the God of gentleness. But if you really read the Gospels, we see Jesus spent a lot of time speaking about hell and didn't meet his words when he talked about the weeping, the gnashing of teeth. Now, the only real option open to us is to accept that it must be there for a reason and try and understand what that reason is. And the first thing we need to understand is that God is not a capricious God who acts on a whim. He doesn't have sort of Wayne Rooney-like fits of temper that cause him to to lash out and get three-match bans. God is described later in Exodus as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. I don't know about you, but when I read the, the, the earlier chapters about the plagues, you know, you, you do start to get a little bit bored, don't you, and switch off. You know, after you read the first couple, it's, okay, I get the idea now. Um, Pharaoh, just do what he says. Um, can't you see that it's not going to get you anywhere by, by refusing? But that's the point. Nine times God warns Pharaoh. And each time the consequences get worse. And still he refuses to listen. You know, you would have thought that after the first flood, the plague, the, the blood, the, the frogs, he would have let them go. And then the gnats and the flies. I remember going to Ayers Rock and uh, seeing these Japanese tourists with their wide-brimmed caps and uh, netting around them and thinking, well, there's not many bees around here. What, what, what's going on here? Um, and I soon realised what they were for. The, the flies around there are horrendous. They, they're not like the English flies, the nice polite flies where you, you brush them off and they get the message and disappear. Um, no, these Australian flies, they will stick in your, in your, in your lips, they will go in your, your ears, they, you just can't brush them off. Imagine having swarms of them all over you. Still Pharaoh doesn't get it. And so we have the plague on the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts. Surely you would have thought, well, let's just weigh this up here. You can either lose some of your workforce or live lives of misery. And the trouble is, unbelieving people stubbornly refuse to take notice of God's warnings. And it's, it's in many ways an irrational stubbornness. I mean, how many people do you know who have had near misses? People who have made promises to God? And then, as things got better, have forgotten those promises. People with life-threatening illnesses, people in life-threatening situations, calling out to God to rescue them. And then once rescued, they turn their back on him, as if it never happened, as if that rescue was just a matter of chance. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But that carries on. Yet, he does not leave the guilty 
unpunished. And all are guilty. We are all guilty here. And yet he's prepared to forgive all. But those who continue in their rebellion and sin, who do not seek his forgiveness, will one day be punished. And the point of this stark picture of judgment we see here in this passage, that it is no less terrible than what awaits those who continue to reject God. And the trouble is in our society, like um, that of Egypt, is that we don't want to face up to that fact. People avoid the, the discussion of judgment. Maybe they ridicule it. You know, you're not one of those sort of hellfire and damnation people, are you? Or maybe they just misunderstood Christians as being, you know, the judgment being about Christians being judgmental on other people. Judgment is terrifying, but it is also a reality. And if we can't accept this picture of God's judgment, then we won't be able to fully understand and appreciate the significance of the Passover. Because the Passover, as God's means of redemption, is remarkable. It is remarkable. Why do I say redemption rather than just rescue? Because redemption is more than just rescue. But if you know Bear Grylls, the, uh, the TV survival guy, somebody um, who uh, has produced an autobiography, which I can recommend actually, he's a Christian guy, and uh, if you're into adventure, he tells the story of his SAS training and uh, his, uh, um, his conquest of Everest and all sorts of things. Um, but he's somebody who's been rescued lots of times. Um, he's escaped death many times. He's landed on his back from a plane when his parachute ripped and he crashed to the ground. He fell down a crevasse and was hanging in a crevasse. And I'm sure he would have been very grateful to his rescuers. But I wonder how many of those rescuers, as those helicopter pilots came in and plucked him off a, a mountain or wherever, how many of them he would have seen again? You know, you are, you are rescued and you are grateful to your rescuers. But your life carries on as before. The people of Egypt have been rescued by God nine times. Nine times he had stopped the plague. He'd rescued them from their misery. But he didn't redeem them. Because to redeem them is not just to rescue them, but to rescue them and bring them into a relationship with him. When we started our current series in Exodus a few weeks ago now, I said the main theme of the book was, was covenant relationship with God. I chose a verse which I thought um, in many ways best summed up the book, and that was this one from Exodus 19, um, verse 4. You might want to just turn to that briefly. Exodus 19, verse 4. says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. The difference between a simple rescue and redemption is that redemption has a cost attached to it. To become a treasured possession of God, a price had to be paid. 
So why was this Passover all about redemption then? Because there was a price that was paid here. There was a sacrifice. Have a look again at verse 12 of chapter 12 there. It says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. Now notice here he doesn't say every Egyptian firstborn. He says every firstborn, including the Israelites. Unless, verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Well, what is this blood? It's the blood of a lamb. And we read in the first verses of chapter 12 precise instructions about uh, how they should take a perfect lamb. A year-old male without defect, one for each household. And if that's too much, then they should share. It's important that nothing is wasted here. The meat is to be eaten and anything left over burned. It's only to be used for this purpose. The blood of the lamb is to be put on the top and the sides of the, the door frame. And as God passes through Egypt and sees the blood of the lamb on the door frame, he passes over that house and the people in that house are spared. Now that raises a few questions, doesn't it? Well, what change does seeing the blood bring about in God? And the answer is it averts his anger towards the people in that house. It stops his judgment on them. Why does it mean that the the people in that house are are less sinful than those in other houses? Well, Well, no. So why is it that when he sees that blood, he leaves it untouched? Because that blood is proof that there's been a death in that house. In every house in Egypt, both Egyptian and Israelite, there has been a death. In some it's the death of a firstborn son. In others it's been the death of a lamb. But either way, if this death has occurred, then justice has been satisfied in God's eyes. It's what we refer to as, you may have heard the term penal substitution. Somebody or someone taking a penalty or a punishment instead of somebody else. In this case, the death of a lamb instead of the death of a firstborn son. The lamb bore the penalty that uh, the firstborn son would otherwise have borne, or Israel as the firstborn son would have borne. Now, as we look at this, I hope you'll be making the connections in your head with another lamb that we've read about this evening, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The one who John the Baptist saw coming towards him, and as he started his ministry, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's go to that passage uh, that was read from Mark's Gospel in chapter 14. This is Jesus at the, uh, the end of his ministry. Chapter 14, verse uh, 12. And it starts off, doesn't it, with references to the Passover. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, this is no weird coincidence that the Passover supper is the time when he is to celebrate the last supper with his disciples before he goes to the cross. This is all part of God's providence. But Jesus says, verse 22, 
as he takes the bread, as he gives thanks, he says to his disciples, take it. This is my body. And he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Those lambs that were killed on that first Passover pointed forward to the real Lamb of God who willingly allowed his blood to be shed, to be poured out on a cross that we might go free. And think of somebody standing in our place so that we don't have to face that punishment is that our gratitude towards that person will depend largely on what he has saved us from. If you've got to pay a £60 parking fine and somebody comes and offers offers to pay it for you, you're going to be grateful to them. If your house is about to be repossessed because of your mortgage arrears and somebody comes and pays them off, you're going to be very grateful to them. If you're on death row for murder, you'd be quite amazed if somebody offered to take a lethal injection on your behalf. But if our sin is so serious that we are facing, in the words of 2 Thessalonians, eternal destruction, and we are saved from that, then we should be overwhelmed with gratitude at the wonder, the love that should prompt God to do that for us. It means we must be really precious to him for him to want to take that punishment for us. The thing is, both with the instructions about the Passover and the death of Jesus on the cross, they require a response. As we come on to our third point, God wants us to respond and to remember. Let's come back to Exodus 12 and that question about why the blood on the doorframe? What was that all about? Is it to show God where the Israelites are as he passes through? Of course not. God knows exactly where they are. If you remember the previous plagues that um, struck Egypt, they didn't strike where the Israelites were because God knew where they were. So why is this one different? Because God was looking for a response from them. He wanted them to demonstrate their trust in him. That even on this night of terror, they knew they were safe in his hands. There's also the Israelites saying, I I trust in the Lord and I want to show that this lamb has died for me. I want to belong to him. I don't just want to be rescued from slavery in Egypt. I want to follow this God for the rest of my life. And we're faced with the same choice today. We too are all under judgment. But we too have been given a way out. We have the opportunity to be redeemed by God, to become one of his people. And the means of that redemption is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, the people of Israel did what God commanded them to do. But he didn't leave it at that, did he? He knew how easily they would forget, how easily future generations would forget. And so what does he say? He says, this is a day you are to commemorate For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. What keeps a relationship alive is remembering. Remembering how that person stood by you in those tough times. The trouble is we're usually better remembering when people have hurt us and let us down. We're quite good at holding on to those grudges. 
but less good at remembering all the many good things people have done for us. God institutes a festival and he goes on to give the instructions about that festival, removing yeast, having assemblies on the first and the seventh day. And he tells them in verse 25 to observe this ceremony when you enter the promised land in the future. And the importance here is when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Of course, we don't keep the Passover feast as Christians today because that feast has been superseded by another one, the Lord's Supper, which is what we do practice, lest we forget what Christ did for us on that cross. And Jesus also said, do this in remembrance of me. And he doesn't give us the bread and wine and say, when you look at these, just remember my sacrifice for you. It's not just a visual thing. We're meant to take part in it, to to eat the bread, to drink the wine, and enjoy that spiritual experience of Christ's sacrifice. If we lose the passion, the excitement about being a Christian. If we're more interested in just uh, having a bit of a moan about aspects of church life which um, we find a a bit irritating or just have a bit of a whinge about um, annoying people, it's often because we've forgotten what Christ has done for us. It's, It's losing the joy of knowing that our sins have been forgiven. Forgetting what it meant for Christ to die in our place on that cross. The Apostle Peter's goal in life was for people to know the gospel message and for them to remember it. And this is what he writes. He writes, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let's not forget that.